You are listening to the Galena Missions Podcast, the preaching ministry of Galena Bible Church. Follow along as we study God's Word together. Grab your Bible and join me in Mark's Gospel, chapter 10. Mark, chapter 10, starting in verse 17. Um, we are in a series right now called Just Like Jesus. That is the, the goal and heart of every believer is to every day, in every way, conform, be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Uh, and of course, this is not something that we have the ability to do of our own power. It really is a supernatural thing um, to change... Uh, things within our own heart, within our own life uh, that are just so ingrained. And uh, most of what we do, we learn by observation of the people around us, right? If you got a temper, oftentimes you can look back to the role models that you had in your life and you can see that same temper. Uh, If you have great patience, it's probably because somebody modeled that for you as well. And so it's the reason why we as Christians want to spend such an exorbitant amount of time studying the person and work and nature and character of Jesus um, because it's who we desire to be. We want to be like Him. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn amongst all creation, that all things were made by Him and for Him, uh, and we want to be uh, His image into this world and to be changed in that. The subject of love, um, as it comes up in all kinds of conversations, Um, is uh, a subject that is uh, highly valued in this world. Everybody wants to to be loved, uh, wants to have love. Uh, And then the challenge, though, that we face in this world is the definitions that exist of love. What does it mean to love? Is to love someone to uh, unconditionally accept them in their behaviors uh, and those kind of things? Well, we uh, know by nature that that's not true because every parent that stops their child from pummeling off of the cliff, even though the kid is wailing as they want to do it, we know that it is loving to not allow them to do those kind of actions. Uh, the world is filled with love. We love all kinds of things, right? We love ice cream and puppy dogs and vacations. Um, we love our coworkers. We love autumn time. Uh, we love a good song and we love our spouse. But of course, we don't love those things in the same way, with the same passions, with the same uh, emphasis. And so it is oftentimes a challenging thing if we ask ourselves the question, am I a person that loves well um, for us to be able to evaluate that in such a way as to be able to answer it appropriately or truthfully might prove to be a challenge. We oftentimes talk about Jesus in terms of love. Jesus loves the little children. Jesus so loved the world that He gave uh, His own life for us. These kind of things. But what does it look like For Jesus to love when He knows that the reception that He's going to receive from the love that He gives is not the reception that He wants. This is the question of love that I want us to wrestle with because it's it's easy for us to love someone when we know they're going to love us back. Right? It's, it's one thing to love somebody when we know with certainty that we're going to uh, love them back. Or, to say it another way, it's one thing for us to love somebody when they have already loved us and to respond likewise. It makes it easier uh, in that kind of a capacity. But what does it look like for us to love 
when we have a reasonable expectation that the love that we are giving is not going to be returned and is not going to produce the outcome that we desire for it to do? Do we withhold that love or do we give that love out? Mark chapter 10 gives us a picture into the heart of Jesus that I think is unique. I hope we're going to be able to take a little bit of a maybe a different look at this facet of love in Jesus. And it's probably a familiar story to you. Mark chapter 10, verse starting in verse 16, says this. As he, Jesus, was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, One thing you lack. Go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But at these words, he was saddened, grieved or gloomy. And he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus, looking around, said to His disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And His disciples were amazed at His words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were even more astonished. And they said to Him, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With people, it is impossible. But not with God. For all things are possible with God. This is the word of the Lord. This, of course, is this, the, uh, the story, not the parable, but the actual story of what has been known as the rich young ruler. Um, Mark's Gospel is the only one that gives him the annotations of being rich and young. The, uh, uh, Matthew and Luke just describe him as a ruler that came to him with this same thing. All three of those, uh, what are called the synoptic Gospels, ones that uh, mirror each other in form and story, uh, differing from, say, the Gospel of John, Uh, have this story and it's such a a pivotal one because it's so stark. Uh, And it's so stark for us as we think of religion, as we think of church, um, that if the rich young ruler stepped into almost any single church, it wouldn't be long before we'd be asking that individual to lead ministries and join ministry teams and move into official capacities uh, within the life of the church. Uh, He was an influential individual Uh, He was young and vibrant, apparently. Uh, He was wealthy. He was well off. He was not going to be somebody that was going to be taking from the ministry, but giving to it specifically. And he was incredibly moral. You see the the picture that Jesus gives him there where he uh, tells him, you know what the Scripture is saying. He gives them the list, right? All the don'ts. Don't do this, don't do that. And he says, man, I got it. I've done all of these since my youth. I am a man of upright uh, character, of upright means. 
everybody in society would look at this individual and would be like, this guy is amazing. And Jesus looks at him, but He doesn't look at him the him that, he, that we see. He looks at the real him. The one that nobody can see. Because Jesus can actually see his heart. And Jesus looks at this man, and Mark's Gospel is the only one that records this specific little nuance. He says he looked at him, and he loved him. And then he said to him, there's one little issue with your heart. One little thing that's keeping you from answering the question that you asked. Did you read what he he said? He said, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Surely there's something in my doing that I'm lacking that warrants or deserves eternal life for me. And I want to make sure I've secured that. I want to make sure that I'm doing the things that I'm supposed to do so that I can say with certainty, I have eternal life. It's mine forever. And Jesus looks at this man and He loves him. And as we see this story, we see not necessarily a happy ending to this, right? This man goes away sad and grieved because he doesn't want to do what Jesus says. He wants to keep doing what he's doing, living a moral life with all the things that he has, and he goes away sad. We could title this sermon, What to Do When Jesus' Love Isn't Enough. Kind of a stark thing when Michelle and I were driving back up, and she said, "What are you preaching on this week?" And uh, and I said, "Well, I think I'm going to be preaching on this." And 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 that's you know just the concept of what do we, you know what do we do when 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 love isn't enough, and specifically when Jesus's love is enough. And she's like, "I don't like that." And I was like, "Yeah, I don't like that either," because we say Jesus' love is enough, right? If Jesus loves you, that's incredible. That's the most incredible thing. But what do we see here? Is that Jesus loved a man, and it wasn't enough. That's a scary statement. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish but would have everlasting life. And we say those words and it's such a beautiful thing and children saying that Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so story and those kind of things. But the reality of it is, is Jesus looks at people that He loves and sometimes it doesn't transform their soul. And that should be something that should cause us to pause and take a look back. We oftentimes think that the power of love can overcome all things. But the reality of it is, as we love people... How many of you guys know this morning that there are some people in your life that are kind of hard to love? Anybody anybody got any of those kind of people? Yeah. Uh, If you don't, you're the person. Right? There are people in our life that are hard to love. And one of the reasons that they're hard to love is that when we love them, we don't see movement. We don't see change. We don't see how we see maybe that individual continuing in a pattern of behavior that we know is detrimental for their life. Sometimes we love people that are not lovely towards us. That might even give back, when we love them, they give back spite, hurt, heartache in our direction. 
how do we learn to love like Jesus in this way? Well, I think there's a couple of things that we can see from this that I think will be helpful or encouraging towards us. The first thing is this, that when Jesus loved this man, He looked for the good that ought to be. He looked for the good that ought to be. This man comes running up to Him, bows down before Him, and He says, Good Rabbi. Righteous, upright, perfect, good Rabbi. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, not long before this, actually just few verses before this, Jesus had encountered a group of Pharisees who just wanted to test Jesus. And so they threw out the issue of divorce to Him uh, and uh, were weighing Jesus' stance, His theological positioning on something that was so emotionally charged, uh, both relationally, but had lots of precedent in Scripture that talked about the subject. And basically, you know, where are you going to land on this? Not because they cared what He had to say, but because they wanted to catch Him. They they wanted to trip him up. They knew he was gaining favor in the eyes of the people and they were losing it and that they couldn't have that. So they wanted to trip him up in such a way. They weren't being genuine in their asking. It wasn't that they were coming up to him saying, Good teacher, we're we really want to know the heart of God on this subject. Would you tell us what, what is what's right or wrong about divorce and how should that play out? They could care less than that. They really just wanted to slander Jesus. And so if you've ever been in a place where you've been in high stress situations when you felt like there was manipulation and things like that, any of you guys ever been in that kind of a scenario where you you have a random conversation with somebody that was not a part of that story and you just kind of expect the worst out of them or you just assume the worst out of them that really this individual they're, they're, now they're really coming for something for me or they're, they're really after me. We can get jaded in life and interactions with people. We can get jaded in such a way because the world throws so many harsh things that every person that we meet, we just our first expectation is this individual is somebody that's either going to hurt me uh, or backstab me or you know they're really trying to get something from me or whatever and not assume the good that ought to be in them. Jesus could have reached this guy in such a way as to say, uh, man, you're just another one of those fairs. You're just trying to trip me up in this too, right? You're, you're, trying to, you're trying to snag me in another kind of thing. But that's not how Jesus responds to this man. He says, Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? And the, the way that this is written uh, indicates that this was not Jesus being cynical or snarky. He's, he's actually like opening the door to this man's heart of saying, do you know the truth? Because he says, uh, no one's good except God alone. And I'm God. I haven't told you that. But nobody's good except God alone. So he throws out this standard test because the man asked the question, what shall I do? And so Jesus gives him a full list of do's. And they're the big ones. 
the, the, if you think of the Ten Commandments as the two stone tablets, right? This is one side of that. One side of the stone tablet pertains to everything related to God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not speak the name of the Lord in vain. You shall not have graven images. You shall keep the Sabbath day holy. All of those things pertaining to God. The, the other book, the other side pertains to man, right? This is why when Jesus said, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Those two commands fulfill all of the Ten Commandments. And Jesus said that. All of the law and prophets hang on these two. And Jesus looked at him and he said, here's this one side of those relational components between you and people. How have you done on these things? And he says, all of these I've, I've kept since my youth. You see, it's possible for us to speak uh, in different ways as Christians. Um, the, the, the speaker at our conference this last week, I loved it. Uh, I didn't have time to uh, form the chart. But he basically said, Scripture talks about four different kind of ways that we speak. Uh, there are ways that we speak that are kind and unkind. And there are ways that we speak that are true and untrue. So if you think of a four-quadrant picture, true and untrue, kind and unkind. If it is true and it is kind, it's godly, right? That we speak the truth in love. That we're, we're, we're kind in the way that we speak. And Scripture talks about all these kind of things in ways in which we speak towards each other. James talks about this. Uh, Courtney's going to be teaching on this this next week. That uh, It's such an odd thing about the tongue. Because by it we bless our God. And with that same tongue we curse people in whose image, uh, in, in whose image are made. This dynamic of our speech is called to be true and kind. If it is true and unkind, the Bible calls that gossip. It's, it's that subject of speech in which we're, we're talking what is true about somebody... But we don't have we we don't have the permission to be talking about that with them. That's that's true, but it's nobody else's business. And we're inviting other people into other people's business when they're not there. And the Bible talks about that in terms of gossip. If it is untrue and unkind, the Bible describes that as slander. Which is different than gossip. Sometimes gossip can slip over into that because we lose the the true details of the story and then they become things that are untrue in that. And then so this individual now becomes seen in the eyes of other people. Oh, this that's the guy that, you know, embezzled the money, or that's the guy that slept around on his wife, or whatever. Whether it was true or not, it becomes slander. But Jesus is talking about these two things because it sounds kind, right? The, the rich young ruler comes to him and he, he's, it seems like he's being kind. And Jesus is testing his heart to asking this question, is this something that is godly, true and kind, or is this something that's kind but not true? And the Bible calls that, anybody want to guess? Flattery. Flattery. It's kind, but it's not true. Every wife knows this if they come to their husband and say, does this dress look good? And if it doesn't, and the, wife, and the husband's like, yes, because I want to get caught in that one, right? It may be kind, but it might not necessarily be true, right? So it's flattery. 
And Proverbs talks a lot about flattery. And Jesus is on this place with him, and he is assuming of this man the good that ought to be. He doesn't immediately jump to the ulterior motives or something else. He's looking at this man's heart in love, assuming the best out of them. This is such a hard thing for us to do because we are hurt so many times by so many people. Sometimes people that are really close to us and by coworkers and things like that to become jaded and to speak in flattery terms or to speak in gossip terms or to speak in uh, slander kind of terms. But Jesus accepts this in the reality of saying He's assuming the best in what they're saying. He's not naive in the reality of this. Jesus is never that. But this is how Jesus loves. He assumes the good that ought to be in this man's life. There was a good that ought to be but wasn't. As we see this play out a little bit. And Jesus loves him in this. He doesn't just brush him to the side. He accepts him in that. So Jesus' love uh, towards an individual that proves to be a little bit of a challenging person to love, assumes the good that ought to be. The second thing is that Jesus' love is informed by Scripture. Jesus' love is informed by Scripture. When He answers this man the question, He says, you know the commandments. He doesn't argue from a, a, a standpoint of um, general moralism. He doesn't argue from uh, some kind of other uh, pagan ideology. He doesn't argue from philosophy or uh, history or anything else. He goes straight to the Scriptures. He goes straight to the heart of the matter and he assumes this man knows that. Now, of course, the, the, uh, the point of this could be that he could say, well, you know the Scriptures. The guy's like, uh, nope, I don't know those. We have that kind of thing all throughout the New Testament of Paul going into places and preaching the gospel amongst peoples that don't know the truth of Scripture. But everything that is coming from this, all of Jesus' perspective, everything that He's looking at Him with in relation to this is being formed by the reality of what Scripture teaches. It's an interesting thing. We sang the song, Jesus, what a friend of sinners. And we oftentimes talk about that in terms of, uh, you know, Jesus was a friend of prostitutes and He hung out with drunkards. He was known to be a guy that would go to parties. He was with those kind of people. In fact, it was something that was accused against Him as uh, something that disproved who He was or who He claimed to be. And so sometimes we can miss the reality that Jesus was light on sin. That he didn't really actually believe that sin was the cancer that it was in the lives of people. But it's an interesting thing when sinful people would come to Jesus and everybody would look and judge that person as a sinful person. Jesus would love them, would would get down on his knees, would take the sinful woman who had been weeping on his feet and he would love her and he would forgive her and he would uh, walk with her in that kind of place. The woman that was brought to him in the act of adultery and they said, Teacher, the, the Scriptures say that we should stone her What do you say? What do you think we should do? Jesus could have just posed up and said, well, actually the Scriptures say that you should stone her and the guy she was having an affair with, so where's he? Let's bring him into the scenario with this. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus looks at him and says, tell you what, first one of you that doesn't have sin, he'd be the first one to cast stones. And everybody's like, well, shoot. (laughs) Drop their rocks and off they walk, right? But in all of those cases, Jesus looks at them 
And he says, specifically like to the, the woman caught in the act of adultery, he says, woman, who still accuses you? And she says, no one, my Lord. And he says, neither do I. Go. And what's his last line? Sin no more. It wasn't like Jesus was like, go and keep being who you are. Follow your heart. Live how you want to live. Right? Because that wasn't loving. All of Jesus' love was formed by the reality of what God's Word says. We may look antiquated to a world that doesn't believe Scripture. But if it is God that is defi- that who defines all of these things, and He defines it through love, then it would definitely not be loving to say, oh, you regularly commit murder? Well, that's just who you are. Be true to yourself. He says, no. This, this is the truth of, of who you are. Now, He said this in such a way, and I, I find it interesting, um, there's a... a uh, a way of evangelism I was taught years and years back. I don't. Uh, I understand the idea of it. I don't necessarily know that it works in the form that it often was. But it was to take people through the Ten Commandments and ask them those kind of questions and say, "Do you think you're a good person?" And most everybody says, "Well, I, th- I mean, I'm, you know, I'm not as bad as the next guy over, right? You know, those kind of things." And you know, you say, "Well, have you ever committed murder?" And unless you're probably in a jail, most people are at least not going to confess to that, right? Or, you know, or, uh, you know, uh, have you ever committed adultery? Have you ever whatever? All these kind of things. And of course, Jesus has something to say on these things, right? Jesus Jesus says things like, hey, you know, you've heard it said, don't commit murder. I tell you, if you've ever hated anybody, you've committed murder. Don't commit adultery. Whoo, I'm good on that one. You ever looked on lust with anybody? You've committed adultery. Right, all these things. And yet this guy didn't pick up on that stuff. And Jesus, knowing that about the reality, because Jesus had already taught on these things, Jesus didn't look at this guy and go, man, you just don't know how terrible you really are. Right? Because not only was Jesus' love for him formed on the good that ought to be and defined by Scripture, but Jesus' love was fixated on the reality that this was an actual human being. This was an actual human being. Jesus looked at him and loved him. And I always find it fascinating in Scripture when it says that Jesus looked at the person... Because one, we're reading this as story and it's as if Jesus wasn't actually looking, you know, like they're standing over here and it says, and then Jesus looked at them. And so you get the picture of that, right? Jesus physically turning His body and gazing at the person. But it's every time I read those kind of things, it's like Jesus is saying, I'm actually looking at the real you. The you that nobody else sees. Because nobody else can see it. Everybody else looks at you as the sum total of the events of your life. Everybody looks at you based upon the story that they know of you. It's often said that within our culture, one of the first things that we ask is, you know, what your name is and then what you do for a living because I need to be able to understand whether or not I can relate to you or not, right? You know, if you say I'm a teacher, and they're like, hey, cool, I've, I teach Bible study, so I have some understanding of that. I, I went through school, I had teachers, I, I can associate, I can understand those kind of things, right? Um, but if, if you say, like, uh, you know, hi, you know, my, main, my name's Bob, uh, and I make uh, mini action figures for a living, and I might go, I don't, 
I got nothing. <laughs> like I can't, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know how I can. I'm trying to. I'm trying to figure out the way I, you know, I played with those when I was three. I don't know, you know, what, how do I? How do I relate to this kind of a thing? It's because, and then as we hear people's story or we see their physicality, we see, you know, do they have tattoos? Do they have scars? How do they dress? Do they dress dirty? Do they dress clean? How's their speech? And is it understandable? Do they seem like, you know, maybe they're not all there? Or they are. We we judge each other based upon the reality. And that's the person that the world sees. But when Scripture says that it turns to them in love, Jesus sees the real person. He sees the person that was made in the image of God. Which is a, uh, an incredible thing to think about. Because if you were to take every person you've ever met in your life and to try to apply that truth to say, and you turned and saw them. Your first reaction is all the things that they have ever said or done to you. And that's the them that you see. But that's not what Jesus did for you. When Jesus looked at them and loved them, He saw them as a person. Not as the enemy. Not even as the abuser. Not as the manipulator. Not as the criminal. Not as the, uh, not as the slut, not as the playboy, not as the thief, not as any other thing label that gets put onto there. He also didn't see this man as the greatest man that walked ever in front of his face. He didn't see him as this righteous, holier than thou individual. He didn't see him as a business investment. He didn't see Him as any of the things that we would label upon Him. He looked at Him and He loved Him. The real, genuine who He was regardless of where it was. I remember when I was in seminary, uh, we, uh, when I did seminary, I, I, I did a, it was compressed classes. It was basically every Monday throughout the school year from 8 in the morning till 8 in the evening. And I had pastors that would come every week and they had, you know, they're finishing their Sundays and then we had seminary on Monday. And I went in and there was this country pastor that was in his mid-40s and it was just all over his face. He was just exhausted. And he began to share with us. He said, I just, I had the worst weekend. Uh, not just of church life or whatever, but there were things that had come up that there was an individual in his church that it, he had found out that they had been sexually abusing uh, children in their home and all the dynamics of that and the police had gotten involved and he said, everything in me wants nothing more than to end this man's life. And with that feeling, I had to get up on a Sunday morning and preach out of God's Word about God's grace and love. And I'm, I'm wrestling with, how do I believe this? And he basically looked at us as fellow pastors and seminary students and he said, help. And it was one of those where like, uh, Jesus loves me? Uh, you know I mean? What do you, what do you say? What do you say to that? Like, I'll join you. Like, you hold him. I'll hit. You know what I mean? Like, that's, what you, that's, where, that's where my soul is. That's where my heart is in the reality of that. And yet, this reality, I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to be telling people, how do we forgive? How do we love? And the dynamic of forgiving sometimes means I forgive you while you're calling the cops. Right? But it doesn't change the fact of I'm supposed to love this man. How do I love? How, and how do you love this man? 
And in the same way that we are challenged by Jesus to not just be cynical towards people, but to assume the good that ought to be, I believe also we are to look at people and to see the person that God intends for them to become. Because I look at this man, and I told this man as I was uh, this pastor friend of mine after I prayed about it for a while, I said, you know, I don't, I don't know that you can look at him as he is right now and feel a deep love for him. But love the man that God can restore out of him. The man that he ought to be. That only by the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit in his life is even possible. And the only reason I can come to that conclusion is because I really do believe that's how God saw me. When we think of our own sin, we never put it in that kind of a label. Right? We never put our own sin in the kind of label of child abuser. That has its own level of hell for it. Right? You know, my pride, not on the same level. I do actually believe the Scripture does teach that there is a difference between sins, but the outcome of them is the same. They separate us from God. The sins that you and I tolerate and some of those that we even love, God feels a hatred towards the same way that we think about child sex trafficking. And Jesus looked at him, and here's the thing, Jesus looked at you and he looked at me and he saw the real us. And he loved, even knowing what he saw. Jesus sees this man's heart, and he says, great, you're really moral, and you say you love people. But he culminates one tiny thing. He says, this one little thing you lack. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. And the man, it says, goes away grieving and sad, because he had great wealth. Now what did Jesus do? Did Jesus issue a new command? That to be my follower means a life of poverty. Take everything that you have, sell it, give it to the poor, then you get to be a follower of Jesus. That's the way that this, this is a new command I give to you. Now, what Jesus was doing was Jesus handed him the first side of the law. Don't do all these things. And he said, I got that. And what Jesus did on this is He summated all of the, the, the other ones. Have no other gods before Me. Don't make a graven image. Don't speak the name of the Lord. Everything pertaining to God, He summated it all in one thing and then cloaked it in something different. And He said, get rid of your other gods. That's what He said. Are you willing to get rid of your other gods? And the guy's answer, without knowing that this is what he's answering, was like, No. No way. Can't do it. In the days of the early church, a lot of Christianity was thrown to the side because people said, oh, this superstition is being bought by, I mean, is being believed by poor people, slaves, and the like. And they looked at it and they said, yeah, we, we're not taking any of this seriously because of that reality. But over time, there began to be something that was happening that would tick things off in this kind of a way. 
more and more people who were not poor, who were highly educated, who were incredibly influential in their contexts, began to become followers of Jesus. We can read this passage of Scripture and we can have a big gulp in our throat. At least we should have a big gulp in our throat. Because the poorest of us in this room are wealthier than 95% of the rest of the world. Really is a scary thing. There's individuals around the world that work 80 hours a week and get paid in U.S. equivalent dollars $3. And that's not enough to do anything. So when he says uh, to his disciples who were amazed at what he was saying, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. All of Jesus' disciples would have seen that guy in and they would have done what we all did. They looked at him and they loved him, but they loved him through the lens of what they thought he was. And like, this guy's great. And Jesus says, he doesn't have it. And they were astonished because they were going like, that's what I want to be. He's the guy I'm striving to be. I'm trying to be that guy. How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at His words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it will be, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And there's been all kind of debate about what that means and all that kind of stuff. Listen, it was Jesus making a pretty, you know, kind of a, uh, uh, an exaggerated joke that proved the point of going, can you imagine taking a moose and shoving it through a, 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 a beater's needle? Like, no way. It doesn't work. I mean, it just absolute the, the atrocity of it. But if it doesn't work, and we say it's easier for that to happen than for rich people to get into heaven, what in the world are we going to do? So you can feel the tension of the disciples as they they say that they were astonished even more they said well then who can be saved if this guy can't be saved how in the world can the rest of us and here's the final thing about how Jesus loved not only did Jesus love with the intent of what ought to be and he loved through the lens of scripture the truth of the foundation of what God has said and he loved the real person but He loved with a better future. The possibility of a better future. Because with all of the astonishment, in verse 27, Jesus looking at them. Do you catch that too? Jesus looked at Him and Jesus looks at them and He sees their heart. And Jesus said, with people, this is impossible. But not with God. For with God, all things are possible. There's been debate amongst the eons of Christianity so far, last 2,000 years of studying this passage of Scripture. Who was this rich young ruler? Did he leave this conversation with a direct destination to hell? Or did something else happen maybe along the way that we we didn't hear, we didn't know? One theory... And it actually pertains to the issue of the the phrase, Jesus looked at him and loved him. And the fact that that phrase is in this one and not in the other ones. There's actually a pretty strong argument 
that a guy by the name of John Mark was the rich young ruler. In fact, the guy that wrote this book. Who did walk away, but the Holy Spirit wouldn't let him go. We know that it is possible because of individuals like Barnabas, individuals like Joseph of Arimathea, and other believers through the years who it looked impossible that they could be transformed from death to life to give up whatever idolatry it was that they were following, whether it was wealth, whether it was addiction, whether it was relationships, whatever it was, and everybody else looked at them and tried loving them, but going like, man, this person is hard to love. And God in His, in His divine sovereignty and His great love for them reaches through all of it and says, yep, for you guys, this is impossible, but not for me. Friends, that's good news for us. That's good news for us. Because pretty much every one of us in this room could have been this rich young ruler walking up to the feet of Jesus, nailing down and saying, good teacher, what, what do I do? How do I get this eternal life? How do I know? If you're like me, which is probably a pretty good chance, you've probably failed this week a couple times. Maybe more than a couple. Kara always reminds me that a couple's only two. Maybe a pile of times. And you might be looking at this pile sitting in front of you, feeling the guilt and grief of it all and saying, there's no way God loves me. i got to try better. i got to work harder. Know this. That while we were yet enemies of God, Christ died for us. The godly for the ungodly. The righteous for the unrighteous. He didn't wait for us to clean ourselves up. He just looked at you and loved you. And the question is ultimately, the question that really was before this rich young ruler was, are you going to receive my love? Because he saw that. He said, go sell everything that you have. Give it to the poor. And then what? Follow me. Follow me. You remember the story of the prodigal son? The one that squandered all of his wealth and he goes and he runs off and he does all that and when he's starving to death and he's in the, the pig pen wishing that he could fill his belly with the food that the pigs are eating and he goes, oh yeah, doesn't my dad have, his servants have more than enough food? I'll go back there. And he goes back and the father makes a fool out of himself. He goes and runs and picks him up and he says, my son that was dead is now alive again and throws a big feast for him. We remember that story and we're, we've all experienced that moment of being the prodigal son that was away and all that kind of stuff. But you know there were actually two prodigal sons in that story? There was another character in that story called the elder brother who came indignant to the father and he says, what is this that you've done? This son of yours that squandered all your wealth and ran off and did all this kind of sin and kind of stuff and you're celebrating this stuff and here I've been staying here laboring with you this whole time and you haven't even given me a goat to celebrate with my friends. He thought that the prize was the fatted calf. When really, the prize was fellowship with the Father. This man, as he was confronted with this, thought that the prize was getting to enjoy his wealth 
however He saw fit, rather than the greater prize of fellowship with the Son. So the question we want to ask this morning is, as we try to seek to be more like Jesus and love like Jesus, the only way that we can love like Jesus is if we've been loved by Jesus. Have we been like the rich young ruler who came to Him and were loved by Jesus and His love had no effect on us? Because we said, yeah, that's great for somebody. Not for me. I like the idea of being loved. But I like the idea of the pleasures that I want to have. Following the way I want to... You know, having the things and doing the things I want to do. As though somehow that's better than Jesus. Friends, I'm here to tell you there's nothing. There's nothing better than Jesus. Every joy, every pleasure, every heart longing that you have is found and completely satisfied in Him. And He gave His life for you so that you could truly experience His love. Let's pray. God, thank You so much for Your Word. Thank You that it is surgical to the truth of who we are. Jesus, help us to abide in Your love. Especially, God, on days that we don't feel lovely. And God, as we try to emulate You, Jesus, would You help us to be able to look for the good that ought to be, to anticipate that, to not live cynically. Help us to ground ourselves in Your Word and define what it means to love this world according to Your truth. Help us to see the real person. Not the person that is projected out to us or the world, that the world sees, but the, you, the, the person that, that You see. And as we see them, Lord, by Your grace, help us to love them to the person that You can transform them to be in Your good pleasure. Because what is impossible for us is possible for You. We love you. It's your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us. We hope you've been blessed by the hearing of God's Word. Feel free to connect with us at www.galenabiblechurchak.com and subscribe to this podcast at iTunes or at galenamissions.podbean.com.